If you're brand new to us this morning, uh, we are in a study of the church. And we just began it last week in speaking of who is it that we say that Jesus is out of Matthew 16 and the, the challenges of that and that question that, that the Lord has asked us, who do you say that I am? And how that is probably the most important question that a man or a woman could ever deal with and come to a conclusion and an answer to is, who do you say Jesus is? And we moved on from that into the challenges that that provoked in us and how we might then proclaim Him. And if we proclaim Him, what does that mean? And so in our series, The Church, we're going to continue on this morning and not only looking at who do you say that Jesus is, but we're going to go hopefully in these next few moments a little deeper and um, find out who does Jesus say that you are. Not only individually, but also corporately as His church. So as we get ready to um, go into that, let's read from Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you to believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone a stumbling block, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, 
Take that which is weak and make it strong. May Your power from Your Word, O God, come forth. We need You. We need to hear from You in Your Word. We humble ourselves, O God, and where there is self-righteousness, where there is pride, where there is malice and where there is slander, O God, we bring it to the cross that we may recall it has been crucified in us and for us by Your hanging on that cross in place of us. And now, God, open our ears that we may hear, our eyes that we may see, and transform our hearts that we may know who we are and what we are to do. In Your name we pray. Amen. I love the book of 1 Peter. It's always been one of my favorites. Most of the context of Peter has to do with how we suffer as Christians in this world and how things happen to us and people come against us because we are to live and to behave so countercultural to the world that it brings suffering upon us. Now that's not a great church building message. And it's not certainly the prosperity message that we hear on TV often. But it is the true message of the Scriptures that we are a race of people that have been called out by God for the specific purpose to live counter to the culture in which He's placed us so that He may be glorified and the culture may be transformed by the salt which exists in it. You'll find it in the Gospels, certainly in the In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus proclaims, you are salt and light. And the warning that if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It's from the beginning, even from Deuteronomy chapter 19, where God tells Israel why they are called out, why He brought them out of Egypt. And the reason for them to be brought out of Egypt was so that they would be a unique and a special people on the earth so that the earth may know who God is. And their existence was to be a culture inside of the culture that transformed all who might be tangent to it. And Peter is the reality and explains the reality of that adumbration, that foreshadowing that we see at Mount Sinai that was fulfilled at Golgotha 
where the real judgment of God, the perfect judgment of God came down upon the mountain so that Jesus in his proclamation upon, I will build this rock, on this rock my church. The reality of what Exodus was about happened there at Golgotha. And Peter now expounds upon that and says because of that moment in history, you and I and all who call upon the name of the Lord are truly those people that are to live as His people. Last week, who does Jesus say that you are? This week, I'm sorry, who do we say that Jesus is, is, but this week? What does God tell us? What do His Scriptures tell us that Jesus says? And who Jesus says we are? Certainly, as we read these words today, I hope for some of you, it certainly did for me, Peter's declaration and the view of his confession back in Matthew 16 that we studied last week is filled with Old Testament illusion and illustrations of this rock as he talks from Isaiah and, and out of the Psalms that he, he proclaims that Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He is the rock upon all things that would be of God. And certainly here in these passages... That moment must be coming in the mind of Peter. It must be in the forefront of his mind. As he speaks from the very first verse in his letter to us, that we are God's elect. So we want to open that up this morning and in these next few moments, I just kind of want to talk about this idea of who we are and then give us three questions that we might answer on where we might go from here. First, it's important for us to understand that because we have come to Christ, Peter starts out this second chapter about what our new attitude is to be. He has talked about how we are God's elect. We've come to Christ. We are now a holy people. And because of that good news, we put away malice. And all deceit, all lying, and hypocrisy. Living not in the culture of Christ, but mostly in the culture of Cain, or in the culture of men, or in the culture of the world. For the apostles, there's no greater hypocrisy. For the follower of Christ to be more caught as followers of the culture of Cain. And that's the story of Abel and Cain. That there are those who are of the blood and those who are of the earth. There are those who understand the holiness of God and the requirement for spilt blood for life for life. And those who seek to minimize it 
and to eschew it and say whatever. And so Peter says, as people who live counter to that, put away malice, put away hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. This is what the people who follow Christ look like. People who have freed themselves from that mindset. Might even say something deeper that we freed ourselves from that heart set. That our hearts have been freed by Christ. That we might not be angry at one another any longer. That we might not talk poorly and degradingly about one another any longer. That we might not come to church on Sunday to fill our tanks up because we've lived so engaged with the earth and the people of the earth all week long that we've forgotten who we were and we need to be reminded. Instead of being filled with the energy and the glory of suffering for Christ and His sake, that we want to come and be compelled to worship our Lord. This is who we are, the Scriptures say. This is who Christ says that you are. You're a people who seek to build up, not to tear down. You're a people who speak the truth in love. You're people who live genuinely to your confession. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And because of that, you are a people that have everything in Him and no need to envy others of the earth. And when you and I begin to know that that is the truth, of who we are in Christ, it's now no longer important that we might slander one another by false stories about one another, exaggeration of each other's failures and stumbling, hearts that criticize the way one might speak Or look. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because that's who you are. You see, in the next four verses, four through eight, you, as you come to Him, the living stone, says, if indeed, I'm sorry, verse 3, if indeed you truly have tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you really believe that Jesus is God and Messiah, if indeed you and I have truly said, Christ, 
I am yours. You are now coming to Him and professing, yes, you are the rock. You are the living stone. You are the immovable, immutable, glorious, magnificent, majestic One, like the largest Everest mountain one could ever see with the glory rays coming down upon it. You are the rock of the earth. Nothing can move you. Nothing can shift you. You are our foundation. And we are merely pebbles upon you. As you come to Him, the living One who was rejected by men, who the earth put away, who the religious people of His day thought it was better to align themselves with the culture of Cain in the kingdom of Rome, to say we have no king but Caesar. We have no authority over us other than the earth and the powers of the earth and the ways of the earth. He was rejected by them. Don't you see what Peter is saying? There's two cultures. There's the world. And then there's Christ. And you and I either belong to the world or we belong to Christ. There's no middle ground. It would be nice if it were, wouldn't it? It would be so much more comfortable. I could pretty much just live Monday through Saturday how I like, and then Sunday hear how I'm supposed to live. Think about it for a while, and then remember, oh yeah, I still have to go back to work on Monday or go to the laundry on Monday morning or go to that office party or go to whatever, and then I need to conform myself more towards those people so they'll promote me and they'll recognize me and I can achieve great things in their eyes and hear the applause of my co and fellow earthly beings. But Peter says something different than that, doesn't he? He says, as you come to him, the living one that was rejected by those people. Who was rejected by that wisdom. But in the sight of God. Not in the sight of men, not in the sight of the world, but in the sight of God. He was chosen as precious. And so it begs the question immediately as we read these, doesn't it? Doesn't it beg the question? Where do you find your value? Where do I find my value as a person? Is it in what people define as precious? 
or what God defines as precious. Because if I truly have come to Him, if I truly am living, coming to the living stone who was rejected by men, who is precious in God's sight, look what happens. You yourselves, like the living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You yourselves, like living stones, reflections of the living stone, image bearers of the living stone. And if the living stone is precious in his sight, then you and I most certainly are defined as precious in the sight of God as well. You see, it's not that we're giving anything up by not conforming to the cultures in which we live in. But it's that we gain everything by conforming to the culture we've been called to live in. That which the world has called foolish in the way that we should live. Your God, my God, the God of East Glenville says it's precious. That you are precious in His sight. I know for some of you it's, it's hard to believe. You've looked at your life and you've said, man, I just, I must, I just don't have a lot of self-worth. I don't have a lot of self-esteem. I don't, I don't, I've never had anybody really put their hand on my back and encourage me and tell me I'm worthy to be loved. I'm worthy to be noticed. I'm worthy to be recognized before people. But hear what the Word says clearly. If you're His, He lifts your face up. Your Father takes His gentle hand underneath your chin and my chin and lifts us up to look Him in the eye to say, You are precious. Now I can tell you as a as a young boy, that probably would have embarrassed me if my parents ever called me precious in the sight of a group of people. I know the ladies probably think that's great that you're precious, guys. Let me let me explain what the word means. You're of great value. Your father grabs you underneath your chin and lifts you up to look you in the eye and say, You to me are of great value. I don't care what the world says about you. I applaud you because of Christ, my son. I don't care what your boss says about you. Because I'm in control of your destiny. And to me, you're precious. Because you're living stones. And then he says three very specific things about what that means. You're a chosen race. The word means there you are a called out people. P 
Peter started this letter out addressed to the elect. He continues on with the exact same word that's interpreted just slightly differently to say chosen. Now, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds with this this morning. If you want to go deep in the weeds with me about this, come to Wednesday night. We'll go as deep as you want to go. But I do not care whether you walk the aisle or whether you were like me and you had a covenant family that you grew up with and you heard the Scriptures from infancy or whether you had a Damascus Road experience and God came and blinded you on the road. That's not what's important right now. What's important right now is that you and I understand clearly that the Scripture says you are chosen by God. That you and I did not elect God to be our God, but that He elected us to be His people. And that's a significant difference. Because if I've elected God to be my God, I can make God into anything I want Him to be. Within some boundaries. But on the other hand, if God elected me, if He chose me to be His, then I am obligated to be who He defines me to be. And to submit myself and conform myself to who He says that I am. And as a chosen people, you and I must understand Irrelevant to how we got that message. The message is this. That you're His. And because you're His, you are of great value and significance in the culture in which He has placed you. Because you and I are His, because He elected to put us together as a house of living stones, we have a purpose to which He's called us to, to be a light unto the nations. Not only are we chosen, but look at what we're chosen to be. Priest. Of course, for some of you who love the Reformation, you'll hear the priesthood of all believers. But let's think a moment about what does it mean for us to be a nation of priests? What, what were the priests doing? The priests certainly led the people in worship. We should be leading one another and the world into worship. It should be the main priority of our lives, should it not? That in everything that we do, everything that we say, it's an act of worship. That the things that we strive for at our workplace, the things that we strive for in the marketplace, the things that we strive for in our home are the things that would cause people and ourselves to worship God. That we're so consumed with the passion of being a priest of God that we have no higher priority than to direct worship to God. And that's what he, we realize, that's what He's called us out to do. We've been called, we've all been called as followers of Christ to be priests of Christ. Every one of us have an oblig obligation and a compulsion 
to drive everything to worship the living God. You might say that we've all been ordained. That the hand of God has laid upon all of our shoulders to be the proclaimers of worship. Well, the priests also led the corporate body in sacrifice. That we are to be a people of sacrifice. Of course, Paul in Romans 12 tells us that our act of worship is to be what? Living sacrifices. That our compulsion and worship is to say, Lord, whatever You want, wherever You want, whenever You want. Have You called me to go across the East Glenville moat? To Burnhill School? To Clifton Park Market Square 44? Hopefully by Easter I'll get that number right. But you get the point. God, I'm here, palms up, head down. Where are we going? What's the field? Why? Because you're also a holy nation. A people of His own possession. Isn't it good to know that you're not really a loose cannon? Isn't it good to know you're not an orphan? Isn't it good to know that the Creator has a hold on you? And you're not just a lump of clay to Him but you are a precious possession, a significant possession that He has a hold of. That the Scriptures tell us no one or nothing can snatch us from His hand. For the purpose of Proclaiming His excellencies. We have a mission on earth to proclaim the excellencies of God. Now our questions. I want us to understand these questions are both individual and corporately. Which culture will we choose? The culture of the cross or the culture of Cain? What I mean by Cain is mankind, the earth, followers of men. I heard John Piper say this the other day. He was reading a story about um, the Christian brothers and brothers that were beheaded and shot on the beaches there in the Middle East not too long ago. And he read the ISIS letter. And in that letter, the the ISIS warriors 
refer to us as this, people of the cross. That we're people of the cross, that we belong to that church of the cross. I really like that. We're followers of the cross. We're followers of of the nation of the cross. What a compliment. But isn't that the question at hand here when we read what Peter says about who we are and what we're to do and who we're to be about? Isn't that the real question that we must ask this morning of ourselves, individually of course, but also corporately as East Glenville Church? Right? Who, who are we? Who are we going to follow? Are we going to be of the culture of Christ, the cross, or of Cain? Because if we're going to be creatures of the cross, followers of Jesus, we're going to have to understand life's going to be a little different for us. It isn't going to be ordinary like those who we work with who may not follow Christ. We're going to have to understand that we have rejected the world to accept Christ. And we have rejected the wisdom of the world so that we may be under the wisdom of Christ. You may think, I may think, I may want, I do want some compromise, some relief valve, some pressure valve to come along. But there's nothing like that in the Scriptures. In fact, it gets worse. And the Apostle John in his epistle, he writes that even if we have the lust of the eye, if we have any love for the world at all, we don't love God. These are hard things. That we are meant to wrestle with. That we are meant to struggle through. So that we may turn our eyes to where we belong. Second question. Will we live counter to the culture or congruent with the culture? Leaders of this church. Will you rely upon the wisdom of the world and the wisdom and the ways of the world? Or will you rely upon the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you according to the Word of God? People of East Glenville, will you rely on your own wisdom, your own opinions, your own opining of the way you think things should be? Or will you submit yourself and conform yourself to the Word of God, relying upon the promises of God to help upbuild the way things are to be, according to the Scriptures? I was watching a gathering of four or five different evangelical ministers and they were debating one another on do we use cultural things in the church to win the culture to the church or do we stay into orthodoxy so that the world could be changed and I, and I'm you know the the answers were ranged from one church that was playing highway to hell by ACDC 
to bring new members in to a church that would never use even a piano, but would only sing the Psalter a cappella. And I, my, my brain was just getting scrambled with the different arguments. And I just wanted them to go, we will live by the Scriptures. We will live what the Bible tells us to live as a church. Because what we have done in the past as the body of Christ is we have been more influenced by our culture than we are influencing our culture. We are more concerned about what happens Monday through Friday than what God does in our hearts on His day. The things that consume our worry, the things that consume our angst, the things that consume our schedules, the things that consume our bank accounts are mostly things of the flesh. Because we find it easier to trust the world and its wisdom than the promises of God and His Scripture. And it begs a question out of our text today. Well, we live counter to that cultural, so that culture out there may know the excellencies of Christ. Or we will live will we live congruent with it so that the culture will never know we even belong to Christ. I asked the elders a question three years ago, almost to the day. If East Linville was to fold and to lead this community, other than the people who go here, would the community even notice? That's an incredible question for us to answer. Would the world out there, would Clifton Park, not just gossip that the church closed down, I'm talking about would they be lacking in the ministry that happened in their lives because of this church? You see, because the third question is this, will we shelter Jesus under our roof or will we take and spread the glories of His excellency out into the world? Will you shelter Jesus in your heart? Or will you spread His name across the globe? Will you be salt and light to darkness and death? Or will you withdraw so that darkness and death won't even know the difference between salt and light? So put away all malice, all deceit, and especially all hypocrisy. And like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. 
if indeed you taste that the Lord is good. We're very good, and I've noticed this, and it's a compliment, it's an encouragement that we need to keep on doing this because we're really good at this. We are really good at ministering to the physical needs of one another. Watched a couple of Sundays ago. I watched it last Sunday. I'm seeing people come around Ray and Vina. It is amazing, and it just encourages my heart. And it's what we're supposed to do, and it's a great thing for us to do, and we should do it more and more and more. But the question is this, are we ministering spiritually to people beyond these walls? We're really good with physical needs, but are we meeting the spiritual needs of our community? Are lives being transformed and converted into Christ because they see people of excellency? People who have been transformed? People who understand how precious they are in the sight of God? People who understand they're His possession. People who are on fire and zealous for the kingdom of God because that's what they've been called to be and do. We understand our purpose. We understand our mission. And the mission is to see lives transformed for the glory of God. Are people learning how to love one another? Are they increasing in their joy? Are you becoming more patient, kind and gentle? Do you find you're able to go the long haul with somebody? This is the fruit of the culture of the cross. The holy priesthood, the holy nation, God's people. Let's pray.